I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Joining us today is Chris Pedden, a renowned strength conditioning coach who's worked with top tier athletes and passionate amateurs alike. We're about to discover the game-changing benefits of strength and conditioning. And this isn't just for optimizing your own bike fitness, but also for enhanced longevity and overall well-being. So whether you're aiming to smash your 10-mile TT personal best, or you have more humble goals like to ride your first century on the bike, in either scenario, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. To kind of double those effects, to slow down aging and have a higher quality of life and a higher quality of independence later into our years. You know, strength is that key one. You know, the ability to stand out of this seat now is power in the legs to produce that force. The key thing that you think you are, what you think you are and what you're doing are probably two different things. Mirrors can be useful, but don't always rely on them. Especially if you're using a mirror to the side and always trying to look around. Filming yourself is so valuable. Cyclists are at a higher risk of, uh, of overuse injuries because of being in a fixed position, repetitive nature of the sport. Um, so we can, the biggest mitigating factor to that is being stronger. Chris, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Hi, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, great to be here. Chris, for a long time when I was getting started in cycling, I heard this line that strength and conditioning, gym work is going to slow me down on the bike. Is this true? No. And, it, and it's probably one of many myths that continue to circle around cycling, you know, the cultural kind of historic sport that it is, you know, it carries through um, a lot of tradition. Um, but no, it's kind of trying to get across that message to people like, look, you're only riding your bike and if you only do your sport, and that goes for any sport, like you are going to miss out on developing other athletic qualities that help you be better at your sport. So for cycling, they only ride a bike. They're highly developed from an aerobic standpoint. They have a high level of strength endurance because even pushing against the pedals is a, you know, it's some form of resistance against the body. Um, but then we're missing on, you know, developing like high maximal strength qualities or higher like sort of power qualities as well that can help transfer over to how we produce force at the pedals, essentially. Did this myth get debunked around, we had this kind of era of secrecy in cycling training and you would go to a race and you'd ask someone that's doing well, what sort of training they're doing and they'd fob it off where, oh, I'm not really doing much. And that era of secrecy, I suppose, was unveiled or unmasked in the last 10 years when we've seen this proliferation of online sources from mm. GCN to you know, Dylan Johnson on YouTube and more widespread access to resources like PubMed if you want to go down the rabbit hole on that stuff. Yeah. Was it around then that we started seeing this lack of debate that strength and conditioning is actually beneficial? Um, I would, yes and no. Um, I think at the top level, people are saying that they're doing something in season. Like the biggest, my one of my biggest arguments is how do we keep riders doing it more regularly throughout a season rather than just the typical winter period um, and then just drop it from sort of February to October. And there's teams out there that say we do do something. Now, I don't know exactly what because I'm not privy to absolutely everything. Um, and, and then, But then I also know that there's teams that are just out there going like, it's just not worth it, um, depending on the nature of the team and the riders they've got. So, yeah, I think th there's clearly enough information out there now to show like it does work and there's enough information to show like we can detrain from 
not having it there. Um, so we lose those qualities that we can, any benefits we do gain, we can lose again. But it's also hard then as well. Like if you've got a rider performing at the top of their game and they've already won some huge races, well, how can you say, well, I this could have made you, we could have made you better here or there. It's a bit of a stumbling block, but I think there's definitely more coaches, more sort of head of performances that their interest is more peaked into. But I think it's not necessarily, I don't think the why is there now. Like people, I think those who have, who are well-read, who have looked at the, the literature, who understand it all, understand that it can work. Like it does help. It can help improve performance because it's shown time and time again in, across all from amateur through to professional. I think it's the how that we're lacking on. And it's, it's a tough one. Like we need to challenge current beliefs within cycling across anything, you know, whether that's from a, how we ride the bike, how we fuel on the bike, you know, all the things we've seen tons of change over the years. So it needs to be challenged, but how you challenge it, I think is the key thing because you don't want to make people feel like an idiot. You don't want to rub people's backs, get people's backs up. So you don't want to be seen like the, the arsehole per se, you know, excuse the language in terms of like saying, look, you should be doing it and pointing the finger because Again, if you just point the finger, people are just going to put a brick wall up to it anyway, and then we'll just avoid it. Um, and you know, yes, it's okay to poke the bear time and time again, but maybe I've got a quite a sarcastic sense of humour from my time spent in the in the navy. So sometimes it's nice to put, I poke the bear, but but maybe people don't get my sarcastic viewpoint of how I'm saying it. But I've learned then to go look. Let's challenge it, but challenge it in maybe an educational way. Show how these are the riders I'm working with. These are the results I'm getting. This is how you can implement it. This is how you could implement it. Like, let's have a conversation based off of that. How big a difference does it make? Can we quantify it? That's the trouble. We can't. I mean, so we couldn't quantify rider to rider. Pretty much every study out there is showing that time trial performance will improve. Your total max capacity peak power output will improve. Your your power output, at like four millimolar, like um, of lactate when you're lactate testing. So there are performance metrics within cycling that we understand are key variables of performance, which are shown to improve from an eight to sixteen week study. But then we've also shown that if you then drop it within four to eight weeks, whatever you've gained, you will then return back to baseline of where you were previously as well. As well. So, but we can't just say, look, you're going to put ten watts on or fifty watts on or whatever. But we will see an improvement, and, and if it's not in out and out power variables, it's like like the resiliency to injury. Like you know, cyclists are at higher risk of, uh, of overuse injuries because of being in a fixed position, repetitive nature of the sport. Um, so we can over, the, the biggest mitigating factor to that is being stronger. So any of the kind of anterior knee pain issues that people get, any kind of you know, being more robust from crashes, like we're going to have stronger bones. Like there's enough evidence out there for for riders with poor bone health as a consequence of no structural loading through the through the skeleton. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point because if you look at even the the question you're attempting to answer there, does it work? Well, does it work for world tour riders who only view the world through one lens of performance and are maybe a little oblivious to, you know, if I fall and I break a bone, I don't care. Like we've seen this crazy trend a few years ago. I'm not sure uh, how long you've been following cycling. But riders in attempt to shed weight they were decalcifying their bones to make better power to weight ratios. Yes. So they were hitting the ground and their their bones were literally like paper mache or powder. They were just breaking. So the world tour riders aren't necessarily 
the best template for us to always follow. So when I say, does it work? It's like, what level rider should be doing this? If I can only devote five hours per week to training and I'm a cyclist and at the moment, all five of those are on the bike and my targets are, you know, modest targets like a Grand Fondo next summer. Should I be looking to peel away some of that five hours and now distribute that into the gym instead of 100% on the bike? Honestly, at that low level of volume of training, maybe not. And as much as I want people in the gym, like we all know that time on the bike is your biggest factor to getting better. Like I ride a bike, I, I ride, I race. Like there's what I'm trying to say people to do, I do myself. I'm trying to balance that that factor of performance and in, in, in time in the gym and everything else. But if you've got such limited time, could you say, okay, can we get 20 minutes out of you? Could you week out? If you've only got five hours, could we find maybe half an hour that you could just do something? You know, like what? how stacked is your week and what could we do? And is that enough for someone like that to be getting a half an hour? So four and a half hours bike, a half an hour S&C? You, you could, yeah, you could do a very, very minimalist program just to give them some kind of stimulus. Um, from an amateur rider, long, like being able to ride longer, pain-free, being able to, like, no, no back pain, like, you know, people suffer from like, position issues like being out on the bike you know longer periods of time like can we get you more efficient in terms so we can improve mechanical efficiency so you know they're going to be able to produce more power for less effort so they can go faster for longer they're going to be more comfortable on the bike less sort of positional pain issues that they can have as an amateur and again from across the board it's probably more so from an amateur perspective from what I especially from what I see when I ride out and about is they don't like going up against tough resistance on the bike. So they always try to pedal at that 90, 95 RPM, even on the hill. And they're always going through the block. And once they run out of those gears, they're screwed. And then they don't, they're not confident in, in kind of rolling at that 60 to 80 and just putting that torque through the pedals. So we know as a rider, amateur to professional, you're going to need to produce power in a number of different ways. But if you're not strong enough, when it really matters, when you're on a, a climb, which is unavoidable for anyone, you haven't got the necessary torque available to produce the power to keep you moving forward. So there's, a, there's the, the key sort of um, marrying them together, like the time spent in the bike is going to get you help stronger to then maybe do some of your torque intervals as well, those low cadence intervals to help you get better at producing that force so that when you do come to have to accelerate or if you do come to a climb or if you're riding mountain bike or cross in the mud and you're in those real deep sections which having you to slow you down and you need to grind through, well, you'll have the torque available to be able to keep moving forward, essentially. You'll not have to stop and get off. And does your consideration of whether someone should strength train or not, what's that dependent on? Is it a weekly volume? Like you're saying, someone with five hours, maybe they should S&C, maybe they should not. Is it totally dependent on someone's available training time or does the consideration change depending on their age as well? Yeah, so... Ultimately, we know time on the bike, if you want to get better, ride more. You know, someone doing 10 hours should be better than someone doing five hours on the bike. You know, someone doing 15, you'd like to think that because they can accrue more volume, that they should naturally be fitter, faster, stronger as a, as a consequence. So when you're looking at someone very minimalist, it's like you probably try, okay, how can we, how can we maybe do something as part of that maybe one hour block? Like even if it's 10 minutes, maybe even if it's really micro dosing across the week doing 10 minutes and then you've got 50 minutes, you know, sort of doing something, then 50 minutes on the bike or whatever it may be is a part of a session. But then like you alluded to there with an age factor, there's enough 
evidence to support now. Like we know we lose muscle as we age. Like we lose our type two fibers more so, so our power fast twitch fibers. And we only lose them as a consequence of not strength training. So quality of life, like cyclists are doing a lot of things well from an aerobic standpoint, like an aerobic fitness and, and, and slowing down aging. But then to kind of double those effects to slow down aging and have a higher quality of life and a higher quality of independence later into our years, you know, strength is that key one. You know, the ability to stand out of this seat now is power in the legs to produce that force. When you trip over a curb when you're walking, that stumble as you get and your feet are trying to go out in front of you, that's your fast twitch fibers at play trying to stop you from falling. And that's what we lose when we, you know, so we've all seen the the vets become just diesel engines, just they can go out all day, churn a gear and just go at one constant speed. But they've got zero acceleration, they struggle on hills, they can't, they've got no snap to get out of the saddle because they're losing that power. And you probably see it a little bit in the world tour potentially. Those who are into their mid-30s, later 30s, they're no longer, even if they've never really had a snap, they had a little bit of a kick going for, you know, in the past. They haven't got those accelerative abilities because they don't train them. And they're not either training them on the bike or potentially off the bike either. For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into. Just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Watt Bike. The Watt Bike Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio. And if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10 minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Watt Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. So if someone at this point in the conversation, if they're still with us and they've bought into the idea of, okay, I need to change my patterns and habits now, I need to start thinking about incorporating strength and conditioning. How do we start it? Like a typical client that I would work with from a coaching perspective, they're a little bit time crunch, they're family people. So they get their long rides in normally on a Saturday and Sunday. It could be long club rides or races depending on time of year. Monday's normally a day off. Friday's a very light day. And you have some combination of intervals, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's a pretty routine structure for most working Joes. How would we integrate strength training into that weekly schedule? So initially it would be like, you know, say you approach me and say, look, I would like you to work with rider A over here. He, he's keen to do it. How do we do it? And then so looking at it going, well, okay, how are you structuring this week? So that's, you've got your overall structure. I always like to ask from a personal standpoint of how I work would be, 
please can I have access to their training peaks? So be a shared coach so I can see what you're doing. Just so I've got eyes on the plan, trying to figure out their goals, what time availability they've got, and then going to cool. Well, what are their key sessions within the week? So you might say like out of the three days in the middle of the week, which is quite a lot of intensity or the higher levels of intensity through the week, which one is the one you really want to protect that they need to get the most out of? That might be Wednesday as an example. So you might be using Tuesday as a bit of a primer to to help them get the most out of Wednesday. Then we might go, cool, like, okay, Thursday then. What can we do? Like, have they got time from a, for a double day to split the day? Or can we just do something a little bit before or a little bit after, depending on who they are? And they can start at home. Like, just doing some bodyweight movements will help you get stronger, but you will exhaust that really, really quickly. So you would put the strength conditioning session the day before a rest day, like your positioning on Thursday, so you have Friday off, or does, does the positioning of it matter? Potentially. So I work with some coaches. They like to go, like, I want to do it there because I know they've got a rest day the next day and they've got more time to recover. Again, it depends on how the week is structured. Are they racing midweek for some people, you know, like at an amateur level, um, especially through the summer now, there's all the, the evening midweek stuff. And you're just trying to look at the week, look at the type of the session they've got and what else is to come and go, okay, where could it best fit? Now, it might be that you do even do it on a Saturday, you know, if you've got two long rides on a Saturday and Sunday, but you're not worried about the fatigue that's going in because it's just e- easy riding, well, you might double up on a Saturday as an example um, because, you know, even Sunday, they're just going to be riding zone two. Then the Monday, they might get off. Is it a bad idea to do it on a rest day? I know a lot of athletes, time is their biggest consideration and double days are quite difficult yes, to swing yeah. for most athletes that I chat with. And Monday or Friday could be a total rest day. Yeah. Is it a bad idea to compromise your rest day? If you've got two rest days in a week, I would say you could utilize one of them as a strength day. I always like to give, make sure people at least got one full rest day of doing nothing. Otherwise, you're not fully resting. You know, you're always creating a stimulus to the system. And even though you're not trying to create a lot of fatigue from strength work, and I think that's where a lot, of, and again, a lot of the sort of misinformation comes around of how things are programmed is people are doing too much so it leaves them too fatigued to ride. Um, you know, for some, it's still going to leave a bit of residual fatigue in the system, depending on, you know, how fresh or fatigued they've been on any one day going into it. So you could, if they've got two rest days, you could probably utilize one and keep it there. If you're looking at the overall volume, if they're doing five days a week on the bike, how much volume is overall hours volume there? Could you reduce down one to be in a shorter session? Could you cut half an hour to 45 minutes of volume out of, on the bike to facilitate a, strength, a bit of strength work, which will benefit them, them from, you know, a whole host of other measures in terms of performance, how they feel, you know. So like I've broadly used the term cyclist, but maybe that's misleading for a lot of listeners because I know we're such a diverse group at the moment. Does the recommendations for the type of strength sessions you would give to a client change depending on if someone is road bike rider, gravel cyclist, mountain bike, track, BMX? So most of it would look quite similar. But, you know, we're still, you know, across the board, across disciplines, what do we need to develop? And a lot of it is higher strength qualities that we need to produce. So, but then each discipline will probably have some key variables which you're trying to think, okay, this is what also the demands of the sport. So we know from BMX or track, like BMX are high acceleration out of, the, out of the, the starting gate and they're probably spinning upwards of 200 RPM around a BMX track. How do we, you know, so we need to ensure that they've got high torque qualities, same as the track. 
standing starts. We need high torque qualities to to get on top of a gear and be able to maintain power. They, you know, someone on the track, their peak power is probably coming at like 130 RPM. How do we can we sustain that? What are the torque demands across points race as an example and what, where they lack where where would a rider be lacking it, then when you come to sort of like mountain bike there's a lot of demand on the upper body same in cross you know to be able to handle a bike to be able to handle the downhills and, and I'm, I'm a big believer of upper body training across the board anyway in terms of how like from positional demands uh, how the upper body helps us transfer force through the pedals because the lats do a job of stabilizing the pelvis too as well as the glutes and the core and that gets missed out a lot and um, so people just think your core has to be strong and it's like you know, there's a whole other host of things going on um so each discipline would have a slightly unique demand per the discipline but overall we're looking like can we can we get you stronger can we keep you stronger is probably in a very broad sense I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatellis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor Bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. So what's the best way for someone to get started on this? Is it you know, downloading a plan online and trying to wing it with their kind of legacy COVID lockdown gym they have at home? Is it going to get a personal trainer? Or how do we get started? Um, I mean, just by doing something, you're going to get stronger, you know. So we've got to take into account someone's training age, i.e. their strength training, training age, you know. So even some of the professional riders will have a training age in the gym of probably zero to one, <laughs> you know, they've got very, have had minimal exposure. Yeah. We have to take that into account. What equipment has someone got and where are they willing to train? Are they like, I'm not fussed on going to a gym. Like you mentioned there, you know, I've got, I've got some couple of dumbbells or kettlebells at home. I'm happy to use them or some resistance bands. Um, or can you get, you know, can you just fill up a rucksack and with books or bottles of water and stuff and just create some external resistance. So, the best protocol would be hire someone that understands the sport of cycling and gets to know you as an athlete as well and, and can, you can build a, a coach-client relationship up with. So, Does it need to be hands-on? Like, is there a benefit in actually being there? No, no. So all of my work is online. Just to the nature of everyone I'm working with are based um, either all over the UK or all over Europe as a consequence of who they are, where they race or what team they're attached to, etc. So... All of mine has a has had an online demand in terms of then, but then I ask for video feedback. I will give video feedback so that they do get an element of being coached, but just from an online basis. Now, if you can see someone, it's worth its weight in gold because you will upskill a hell of a lot faster. Like exercising is a skill, like getting used to the skill of movement takes time. So when you're new to it, if you're brand new with no exposure, if you can see someone, go to see because seeing someone, watching how you move, giving you the correct technique cues and everything else will upskill you to a level way faster than it would be trying to figure it out on your own um if you if you don't if you don't want to if you just want to 
because you can Google anything online and say, oh, what's the best thing to build strength, strength of the legs? And it might tell you squats. Chat GPT, I build your plan. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, and it's, the key thing would be to don't be like, film yourself. Because you're saying like, okay, I'm going to do a squat. In your head, you think you're doing exactly what a YouTube video is showing you. It's wild how different it is, isn't it? Because even if you film yourself in your time trial position and you think you look like, you know, 2012 Fabian Cancellara, and then you look back at the video and you're like, oh my God, I look nothing like that. I look like a dentist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, because we all do, we all think, oh, like, you know, you're doing a lot, you're out and about with the boys or you're doing a local crit race, you think you're nice and tucked on your hoods, like in an aero position, and you get the, you get some shots back. You're like, oh, I'm a lot higher than I thought I was. And, the key thing like you think you are, what you think you are and what you're doing is probably two different things. Mirrors can be useful, but don't always rely on them, especially if you're using a mirror to the side and always trying to look around. Filming yourself is so valuable like, because you're going, like, you're going to get instant feedback. What did I look like? How did that feel? If you're using someone online, you can at least provide those videos to the coach and they can say, look, that's good. Like Body positions there is fine. I want you to think about this or think about now, move your foot to this position we can change because every exercise as well has got a variation of that movement. So yes, we can squat you, but should you squat or what type of squat should we do? Should it be a bodyweight squat or should we goblet squat you? At what point do we get you to barbell back squat, which most people probably think they should be doing. And a lot of people probably shouldn't. And that's a, you know, a very vague example. What would you say to someone who's a little intimidated to step into a gym setting? Now, the irony is we've collectively developed this level of comfort of wearing totally skin-tight clothes and sitting in the calf all day. But people are unfamiliar with stepping into that gym setting and it can feel daunting. No, and I get it. Like I've, you know, I've been a trainer now for, for 20 years and I've had people come to me previously when I've worked in gyms to where like, their first exposure was just coming to see me physically. And that's the very first time. And they would only come to, to the gym when they were with me for a session. You know, and then you get them upskilled, get them more confident to the point where they can come alone because they are intimidating places. And unfortunately, there are some knobheads in there. Like, you know, excuse the language again. Like, you know, there are some people who are just full of egos, think they know everything. And, you know, it. so it can be. And it's kind of, what I would say is, you know, Go and check the place out. Does it suit you? Do you like the environment? Do you like the look of it? Do you like the aesthetics of how things are? Is there a room or a, is it a big enough space where you could maybe grab a kettlebell or a dumbbell and just go to the corner of a room with, like, if you've got your own resistance band as well, like, take that in with you and just do a couple of things in the corner away from, like, prying eyes where you think that you might be being watched. But again, if you go into a gym, if, you, if you've got time to go to a gym, maybe hire a trainer because, again, you're with someone that's kind of your guide shielding you away from people, telling you what to do, showing you. And it won't be long before you get up to speed with things and you realise that actually everyone's worried about being watched. Even the most experienced are thinking, like, are people watching me? Have I messed up? Did people see that? What's going on? Like, everyone's got a little bit of self-doubt inside of them. And then you you, you quickly realise, even if they have clocked you for a second, and, and maybe they have or haven't made a passing judgment, within five seconds they're worrying about their next set or what else they're doing in, in their own life because they've got their own worries. Like the gym's a sanctuary for most people, just like riding a bike. We use a bike to de-stress, get away. It takes us away from the, um, the hustle and bustles of the real world. People use the gym for that too, you know. So everyone's in there just for, for self-development and self-improvement. And, and you're no different to that. You're just another wheel in that cog. You're immersed in this strength and conditioning world. 
looking ahead, is there any cutting edge technologies or techniques that you believe is going to revolutionize strength training at the moment? Or is it a case of old fashioned hard work? So there are some bits of technology we can use that will help. They're, they're not sort of revol- they're not revolutionizing the kind of the SNC world and industry. Like they've they've been around for a long time. They've always been used, but not in cycling. Um, so one thing I would like to see personally is we test athletes pre-season and constantly throughout the season. So we, like we do from you know all the physiological testing we do. We don't know how strong cyclists need to be, and that is more than I think. How strong, you know, we've got no strength testing data on any athletes whatsoever. Because no, or even just to interject on that, Chris, I think that for the vast majority of listeners, a lot of the research that we look about uh, is totally performance orientated. The world yes. is only viewed through a performance lens. Can I go faster in a 10 mile or can I go faster in a yeah, yeah. 25 mile TT? The reality is most of us wear many different hats. Most people want to be able to lift the kids above their head. They want to be able to jump into a CrossFit session once a month with their buddies, go play golf the weekends, hike on the summer. So I think when we narrowly look at the world through, does this make me faster or not? We do the notion and the idea of strength and conditioning a disservice because it can help our lives in so many different ways. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think we're, I suppose as a coach, you sort of sometimes narrow into that kind of whole performance realm of, okay, what are the athletes I'm working with are doing, whatever. But also when you actually zoom out, yeah, the, the whole other benefits of like, okay, my quality of life, I'm more pain-free. I can move better. I can, if you've got young kids, I can pick them up or I can put them into their cot, no problems. I can carry my, if I'm traveling, I can carry my kit bags with no issues and do basic things around the house without being, you know, and how many athletes, amateur, you know, from, amateur depression, like probably in pain as a consequence of crashes and all the positional problems they've had because they've just put themselves in a fixed position for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, however long people have been riding. So can we maintain a level of like joint mobility so we're less stiff? Can we maintain a better quality of muscle tissue so we can be more independent? Can we have a level of upper body strength so we can pull ourselves up or we can kind of maybe stop crashing or we can pick up grandchildren can we still run around in the field after our kids or after our grandchildren depending on how you know what age we are having a better quality of muscle means we're more receptive to um taking on board carbohydrates as well so we're at less risk of cardiovascular some of the other cardiovascular diseases as well such as type 2 diabetes etc because we've got we're holding on to muscle tissues and the quality of that muscle again priming ourselves to be able to be at less risk of that you know and obviously it's as athletes, you know, cyclists, we tend to enjoy higher carbohydrate-based diets. We want to be kind of, you know, ensure that the muscles are receptible to that, you know. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a whole, I mean, there's kind of like from the health perspective, it's, it's pretty huge, in not just performance as well. I think it's um, one of the things I've had a client come to me in the past and I said, you know, one of the things I said, look, I can talk about this performance thing here, but and I talked about like the better, having an independent quality of life be strong is going to prevent you from falling, you know, for later on in life. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have greater levels of longevity in life. And that was the trigger for them. And they were like, holy shit. Like I've seen my, I can't tell you if it was their mum or and their uncle, whatever, they were sort of predisposed to some kind of genetic kind of whatever it was. And he's like, I don't want to be like that. Like you've hit, that's the trigger. So what, what are the pain points? So you, it's talking to the individual. What is your lifestyle? What are you trying to achieve? Have you got a manual job? Have you got, like you mentioned, have you got kids? 
Um, do you aspire to have a family? Do you aspire to be young at heart even later in life? And strength training can help, you know, is, is a massive, there's a massive advantage there to doing it. And being able to do that sort of twice a week, once or twice a week for the rest of your life is, is huge. Chris, I'll hook up your Twitter account in the show notes for today because I think anyone that's not following you, there's a lot of value over there on following Chris's strength and conditioning teachings over there. Chris, thanks very much for taking the time to chat with me today. No worries, mate. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.